Right. So if I have a tibia that's going, going ER and a femur that's going IR, you've got a patella that's going to get pulled laterally. Good morning. Happy Monday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Digging into a new week. Uh, quick uh, note of housekeeping. Uh, iFashion members, the Q&A from last week is posted and ready for your viewing pleasure. So uh, take advantage of that. Digging into today's Q&A. Uh, this is with Cade. Cade is working with a uh, very high level basketball player um, that has a history of some tendon related issues in the knee, had a little bit of recurrence of knee pain. He's managing it actually quite well but we did talk about probably what you're going to find most often in these situations is you're going to have a mechanical issue with the knee. One of the most common findings you're going to have is you're going to see this tibiofemoral ER represented at the knee. Um, one of the easiest ways to, to check this is via your, your heel to butt knee flexion measure. So when we have a limitation in knee flexion, we oftentimes have that mechanical issue where you have tibiofemoral ER which would be promoting the screw home representation, which would be an extended representation of the knee and therefore knee flexion becomes limited. So using that as a test may be helpful for you. But we discussed a number of things um, in regards to the mechanical orientation, um, how to address some of the, the tendinopathy related uh, symptoms as far as loading the tendon, how we're gonna go about that. So again, probably gonna be useful for a lot of people. So thank you, Cade. If you'd like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. We will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everyone have an outstanding Monday, and I will see you later. All right. Camera is on. Clock is running. Okay, go ahead. Okay, Bill. So my main question is regarding an athlete that I had that plays basketball. Um, he's been playing basketball for quite a while. Definitely yep. has some changes to tendons, um, particularly at his knees. Right. He has some, some different movement characteristics that I want to take into consideration. And so the main question is knowing what I know about the way that he moves, what can I do to make sure that we're loading right and left knees appropriately from a, from a tendon health standpoint? Well, um, good luck with appropriate, right? When, when you're talking about high performers. For sure. So they're, they're always going to use compensatory strategies because they have to produce high levels of force very frequently and, and much higher levels of force than the average person. So you can't treat them like average ever. So, and I, I think you've had experience with this person over time. Am I correct? Like you, you right. okay. Yep. That's the best way to determine what the best course of action is, is to collect the data over time as you intervene and then, and then see what happens. And it's, it's my understanding that you, you were doing really, really well. And then you had a recurrence. Is that, is that correct? It, very, very mild. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily call it a recurrence, but it was a signal like, Hey, it's something's going on. Okay. Let's, let's talk. Right. Also had a, a UTC scan done. Yeah. So. Um, and, and those are, those are handy. Um, but, but again, they're certainly not a measurement of symptoms, right? Yep. Sure. So, so we always have to take that into consideration as well. So, so let's think about what, what you've got going on here. You've got a guy that's got to produce a lot of force. So he's going to live near or in IR all the time. Yes. Okay. The question mark is, is how does he produce that? Chances are, um, again, the higher force production, the, the less relative motion you're actually going to, to utilize. And, and so that would be normal under his circumstances. So you should expect to see anti-orientation of the pelvis. You should expect to see um, changes at the uh, ankle and foot, right? You should expect to see um, concentric orientation of musculature that produces internal rotation, especially at the knee, right? So vastus lateralis is going to be concentrically oriented. Um, short head of biceps is going to be concentrically oriented, right? What you want to make sure though, is that you've got enough. And again, enough is the question mark when you're, when you're looking at performance, that you've got enough of the ER to capture positions and enough of the IR to produce force. And then that, that becomes the question mark. So when you start looking at the knee itself, 
How close to a heel to butt measurement do you have? So that's gonna give you an idea of how much tibia femoral IR you have. So you have normal knee bending. So if you have a situation where say you have a femur that is internally rotating to produce force into the ground and you've got a, a tibia that is remaining in external rotation, you have a mechanical disconnect, so to speak, as far as where you want those knee mechanics to be to produce force. Right. So if I have a tibia that's going, going ER and a femur that's going IR, you've got a patella that's gonna get pulled laterally, which it loves to do because that's where it came from. So, so you have those circumstances, you have a mechanical circumstance that can produce um, aberrant mechanics, if you will, um, during force production. Whether it becomes symptomatic or not, that is duration of symptoms, how severe is the, is the, you know, the pressures and tensions that are related, and then what is the perception. Right. Um, so again, those are all, all in play, but from a mechanical standpoint, you wanna make sure that you've captured enough Mm -hmm. enough of that of the tibial femoral ir so that when it does come time for him to put force into the ground he's doing it with um i don't want to say balance of forces because balance is variable but sufficient downward force through the joint versus say a situation where you've got more load on the medial aspect of the femur and you've got again the the concentric orientation of say vastus lateralis that's pulling patella off center mm -hmm. okay where again, you're gonna have a, a situation where you're gonna increase the compressive strategy of the patella against the femur. Under normal circumstances, there is a higher pressure of the patella against the femur. The question mark is, is, is it distributed enough that, it, that it's no longer symptomatic? So if you look at the patellofemoral pain research and they always talk about how, oh, the pressure of the patella increases as you go into a deep squat. It's like, well, yeah, it's supposed to, but it's usually very well distributed. But right. if you have a situation where, where you've got this rotation across the knee, now you have a focal load, okay, that number one, so think about this, you squeeze the blood out of a patella, it hurts, all right? You get, a, you get an ischemic response in the patella itself. So people come in, they say, oh, my knee feels cold, or they feel like, like again, the, the, the focal loading strategy. If you've got a, any imaging, you'll see, you know, histories where the cartilage will start to thin, you know, in certain, certain areas on the, on the posterior patella. But the, the thing that I would encourage you to do is to try to give him enough relative motion so he can capture these, these positions and, and learn how to distribute load versus making them focal with the understanding that it's probably not going to be a normal situation. Mm -hmm. Right. And again, when you're working with superheroes, it's not normal. Right. You don't want normal because normal, <laughs> normal people don't run fast and jump high. Right. And so, so you, you get to know this person over time by collecting data, you intervene to the best of your abilities, and then you monitor these things. But I would say that, that typically um, you're looking at, at some mechanical issues um, that, that may predispose some of this load to become more focal. Mm -hmm. And if you can distribute those, then that's great. So um, you, you sent me some pictures of the uh, hip internal rotation measures. Yeah. So, so be aware as to where those measurements are taking place, okay? So if you do a prone hip internal rotation measurement, what is the position of the hip under those circumstances? So if you've got a, a pelvis that is anteriorly oriented on the table, I can guarantee you that you've got an orientation into ER as you're taking that measurement. So, so um, it would be much like watching someone squat and having to move their, their knees apart and toe out. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they're capturing a position of ER space so they can move into that. And then they produce IR from there. So if you're measuring under, under a similar circumstance, take that into consideration as to where you are capturing that yeah. IR measure, because it, if it's not in line with the axial skeleton as as would be a standard measure, then you need to be as consistent as possible with how you're measuring. So you know when you're making a favorable or an unfavorable change. For sure. And, and I can definitely say that when we put him on his back and measure on the right side, there's a, a lot of side bends. A lot of it comes from his trunk. Right. Um, his knee is most certainly stuck in extension on that side. 
So he's got a, a twist. He's got an IRing and then an ERing of the lower leg. Yeah. And that's the side that I think is probably more likely to to become symptomatic over time because that it's just based off the way that he moves and some of the other stuff that he has going on he has changes to his achilles very mild plantaris compression on the medial side and then also like his big toes so you have a plantaris compression uh, according to the utc okay now hang on hang on this is this is useful this is useful so so think about think about what the knee would have to look like to get a plantaris compression right yeah. So, so you've got a, you've got a fluid shift that is posterior. Yeah, so a post, like a posterior lateral fluid shift. Am I correct? Yeah. He had like a little pouch on the front of his knee that we were able to, it was like a, it almost looked like his knee was swollen. Yeah. So that gets confused but, a lot because it's just the orientation of the knee. Down some. It, was, it was, it was weird. I don't think it was synovial fluid. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So like I said, this gets confused with swelling on, in a lot of cases, because what you have is the femoral orientation resting on top of the, the tibial plateau. And so it creates, literally creates a shift in the fluid compartment itself. And so you get like this sort of like anterior aspect of, of the knee that will show a little bit of puffiness. And then you get the posterior aspect that looks, looks swollen. Right. right? Again, it gets misidentified. Um, a lot of times uh, the, the, uh, uh, athlete will complain of like a posterior pressure um, yep. at, at end range knee flexion. Yep. And, and a lot of times it, it's literally just the fact that they can't create the, they can't reorient the knee to move the fluid out of that area. And so you're just compressing on an incompressible fluid. And that's so then that's what they're end up feeling. Yeah. His, his knee flexion, like healed, but improved tremendously once that started to move back in the correct direction. Um, I, yeah. I guess like a, a quick follow-up, because uh, I know you had talked previously about loading Achilles differences, uh -huh. like a, a posterior calf that's compressed, put them in a seated position, like a seated calf raise, make sure they're uh -huh. in position. Yeah. Let's, let's just, I guess, as an exercise, if we're checking all those boxes from a movement standpoint, like you just discussed, and we do want to do some direct loading of those tendons, yep. like if you look at the research, most of the research is going to suggest that you put it in the most lengthened position possible. So like old school knee extension, put it all the way at the bottom and yep. then gently apply pressure and hold for an isometric and so on. Yes, sir. Do I need to Sorry. that type of thing? No problem. In, in <laughs> consideration uh, when loading, it, is it gonna be the same thing? Is it gonna, am I gonna be creating a situation that I don't want if I do that on both sides? Did I have one side that's more like a, uh, like, a like an EQI, like isometric, almost in knee extension? Would that be a better fit for one side or the other? I'm just trying to figure out the best way to load. You're talking about loading the Achilles though, right? Uh, at, right now, patella, patella. Oh, you, oh, so we're talking about a squat or we're talking about? Just just anything. Like, yeah, I mean, any position, I'm not married to anything. But I guess my question is, like you, like you had mentioned, there's kind of like a best way to load. Like, okay, you've got this posterior compression in a right calf, like he does. Right. A straight leg like standing, like loading his Achilles in that position might not be the best. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so again, you, you got some mechanics to deal with here as to, as to how you're going to load the Achilles. So obviously loading it in a bent knee versus a straight knee orientation is not going to be the same. Is that, is that kind of what we're getting at? For sure. And is yeah. that situation applicable also to the knee, I guess, is like, can you like customize the loading to be um, pulled versus getting compressed? Yeah, probably to a probably to a little bit lesser lesser degree of concern. You're, you're when you're loading the knee, it's going to have to be in a bent position, right? To get any measure of of yield, sure. right? So again, so you're looking at probably some form of of a a squat, which would be very difficult to hold hold under sufficient load, yeah. or you go old school and you go with like a, like a seated knee extension, which is Again, the tendon doesn't know how you're getting the load onto it. It just knows that it's being loaded, right? And so again, trying to find a way uh, to get that load, because again, if you're trying to load a, a knee with sufficient load, based on the research, the, the, the magnitude of load that is required to influence tendon as change is pretty freaking high, right? And it's like, imagine trying to hold that position with that, that degree of, yeah, not going to happen. So again, if you can find a better way to do that, um, you know, and again, this is where, you know, 
people want to poo-poo machine-based training. It's like these are these become useful under those circumstances because I can use higher levels of load um, in and maintain um, those those positions that I do need um, to influence the tendon. Because it's a it's a lot of time, it's a lot of time in those positions. It's not just you know what we would typically use for for strength training because you have to get the stress relaxation response, which is a duration-based adaptation. Yeah, I, I feel like the machine-based approach in that regard, I think we found more success with um, because we're getting the changes with, or working towards the outcomes that we're going for without layering on this excessive fatigue. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Same as like, we really haven't even done much like leg pressing. It's just been more on the, because we're, we're, we're training, we're doing things outside of just this like loading of the tendon. Right. There's right. Got a lot of other stuff going on. So I'm, I'm just trying to like hedge my bets. What's, what's kind of the, the middle ground here that we can still get some load through the yeah. tissue like you mentioned? Yeah. Uh, not, yeah. Not put any excessive fatigue on them. Right. And I, I you know, the, the, the thing that w- while we, we can rely on some of the, the research as far as the response of the tendon to loading and such, I still think that the mechanical component becomes the, the exactly. primary concern under all circumstance. I, I am 100%. Yeah, we want normal behaviors available to us. Yes. You know, you think about just just the fluid content alone under these circumstances, too much ten too much tension, not enough fluid in the in the tendon itself so it can can have normal behaviors. And it's like, okay, well how do I do that? Is that going to be a load-based response? Probably not. That's going to be the the ability to to move the the connective tissue through its full excursion of compression and expansion just like everything else. That makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. That's great. Thank you, Bill. I'll definitely take that stuff into consideration. And, um, you know, I, I think definitely feel much more comfortable about the direction we're heading in, just making sure that we're doing things the right way. Yep. And, and again, use your data over time. Trust it. Trust yep. your data over time. Small, measurable changes consistently. Don't go for home runs. That, that's all we're going for. No home runs. There you go. All awesome. All right, Kate. You got have a great day. Thank you, Bill. You too. Right, bye bye. Bye bye. Let's just design the perfect offensive lineman for a second. Perfect. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have no coffee in hand, and it is perfect. All right. If you're busy and somewhat stressful uh, week this week, so this is actually our last week at. at IFAST 2.0. So, so we've been in this building for 14 years. We're moving to a new location, bigger place, um, lots more space. Um, so a little bit stressful. So we're going to dig straight into today's Q&A. And this is with Larry. Larry had some questions um, about working with offensive linemen because it's not something he's he's terribly familiar with. He's got some friends that, that do work with offensive linemen. And I think he wants to be able to to uh, uh, invest in that situation as well. So um, we talked a lot about how we would construct this perfect offensive lineman. So this is an interesting situation where we're typically we're talking about recapturing ranges of motion. We're talking about the negative consequences of increased force production. And under these circumstances, it's the actual opposite end of the spectrum. We're in situations where we actually want to reduce some of the ability to turn. We want to increase the ability to produce high forces because these athletes are going to be very specifically structured in a certain way. So we're going to be biased towards wide ISAs. They're going to be biased towards high pressure uh, strategies and such. And so again, an interesting conversation um, because we're skewing everything towards performance under these circumstances. So it'll be useful for many of you. If you'd like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it, and we'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everyone have an outstanding Tuesday, and I will see you later. Camera is rolling. Clock has started. What is your question, Larry? Okay, so um, I kind of talked to you a little bit on the emails, but I was, I was talking to a friend of mine, uh-huh. And uh, we 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 got into conversation of your model or some of the things like that, uh-huh. and then he told me, um, you know, that he 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 trains um, uh, offensive tackles in particular, offensive tackles uh-huh. from every level, from NFL. He's working with several guys in the NFL right now, college, and even younger. Yeah. And so um, 
I, I mentioned to him the video that you that you had done with um, can't think of her name, but in any event, she works with uh, pro uh, pitchers. Or uh -huh. I know right. who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And y'all were kind of going through some of the faults that she was seeing, and yeah. and you were kind of explaining in your model, you know, what what she was seeing that hop that they were. I, yeah. I don't know how you broke it down, right? Yeah. So, yeah. um, you know, I was telling him that and I said, well, he goes, well, you know, I really like to be able to, you know, kind of get an idea of what, you know, the, what maybe the faults that I'm seeing or the positional in, in, in deficiencies. Uh -huh. And so I talked to him again last night and, and I said, just, you know, can you give me a few faults that you see or positional errors that you see? And, um, you know, one of the things he said was, well, first thing he said is what he said, it's like the guy, cause I sent him your video, um, there was a video that you just briefly touched on uh, big people like offensive linemen, right? They, you don't want them to turn. They don't want to be Correct. turned, right? Yeah. So you kind of have to balance that with also giving them enough cushion or enough external rotation to be able to have the space, you know, to be more durable, I suppose, to have more relative motion. Um, and you can correct them, correct me on that. But well, they have to be able to, hang on. They do have to be able to absorb some force. Right. Okay. But but generally speaking, um, if if they turn easily, right, they don't really have a job. Yeah. Um, because that that makes them turn like a door, <laughs> you know. Exactly. And the last thing you want to do is have your your left tackle and a right-handed quarterback get turned and then your quarterback's, you know, counting clouds in the sky <laughs> and then wondering why his, his back hurts. Um, so you got to be careful with that. But, <clears throat> but there, I mean, there's certainly an element of that, but from a priority standpoint, excuse me, <clears throat> from a priority standpoint, from a positioning standpoint, when we're talking about the performance aspect of things, the turn is not the highest of priorities. Okay. Well, one thing he did invent was uh, it's, it's a, it's a little handle. You kind of, it has some bars that come up like, like this and you hold it like that, but it's got things to, uh, to attach, yeah. attachments on the outside that are basically trying to pull the guy while he, you know, resists. So, uh, but one of the things that he said is, well, two things that I think, you know, relevant to the positional faults is one, he said that if they get stood up or extended, right, that they basically lost. Yes. Right. They, they've correct. lost. That is correct. And, uh, so he said, so I, I don't know if I need to be doing more core work or no, you know, whatever. No. So I knew that you, that wouldn't That's be not the, the problem. problem. That's yeah. not the problem. That's the not other problem. thing he said is that when they get pushed, when they get that initial contact and they're being pushed backwards, they will, uh, let's say it's a right tackle or right offensive tackle. Um, uh, and it's the um, uh, defensive uh, end, Right that they, they will take a step back with their right leg, right? And, he's, and that's another thing where he said, if they can't hold, if they get into, if their knee goes out, if they get into valgus, right? That they've also lost. So meaning, the way I look at it is they've lost the inside of their foot, big uh, first man had heel. Is that correct or incorrect? Okay, so, so let's, let's, just, let's just design the perfect offensive lineman for a second. Perfect. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. Um, big wide dude. Okay. Yep. Flat as a pancake front to back. So very compressed A to P. Right. So, so that takes away his turns. Now here's the thing that's going to happen here. Okay. So I want a big, strong guy. I want a guy that produces a lot of force. And so, so these are the guys where you go, okay, we're going to bench press you and we're going to back squat you and all that cool stuff. Right. Right. Because yep. that's useful to create that type of a physical structure. Correct. It's also beneficial in, in that um, this is not a guy that I'm concerned with like the deepest possible squat. The offensive lineman is always going to be performing in this, in this position that keeps him really close to max peak. Yeah. Because he has to. Because it looks like the bottom of a squat, right? I mean, it's- Well, it's, it's not the bottom of a squat. I mean, not the squat bottom at 90 degrees. It's, it's the sticking point is what it is, right? Yeah. So this is this is IR, this is high pressure, this is a concentric anterior pelvic outlet, this is orientation into external rotation, and then a compensatory strategy to drive internal rotation. 
they are not going to do this with with your so-called normal relative motions okay right because again it's like the high mobility high mobility is a detriment in this case because again i need to be able to hold my positions right so um when you talk about like the upper extremity positions yeah uh, where, where it looks like they're supinating right okay? all right that is the equivalent that is the equivalent to a wide stance squat with the toes pointing outward so what they do is they have to create a position that allows them to to capture their arm and and lower extremity position and it's going to be an er orientation they create an ir orientation so they're going to be anteriorly oriented in the pelvis they're going to be anteriorly oriented in the thorax and that's what's going to allow them to bring their their hands back into position so they don't want their hands out wide because they open themselves up to physical contact that's where they get stood up okay okay and they get pushed into a space where they can't produce any force they literally get lifted away from the ground I want to stay as close to the ground as I can within, within a range that allows me to produce maximum force into the ground so I can produce maximum force forward because that's where my opponent is. Right. right? So they are, they are actually creating orientations to produce high, high levels of force because you got two 300-pound bodies that are pushing against one another. Right. right? And, and again, so, so if I don't stay in that, that IR downward force position, all I do is get lifted up and I get beat. Right. And then that's where I do have, that's where I do have some relative motion to give up. And then that's where I get turned. Right. Right. So again, if you look at the, the, you know, you, you take a snapshot of, uh, of alignment in position, it's like, you see a lot of 90 degree angles. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, but these are orientations to allow them to produce maximum force. So they, they work in a very, very small range of range of motion. So number one, they have to be able to capture the position. Number two, they have to be able to produce force in that position. They need to be able to produce force very, very quickly in that position. And then they need to be able to produce force very, very quickly, repeatedly in that position. That's how you train an offensive lineman. Right. And whatever so fits that bill, there you go. That that is all useful, right? So it's kind of like the videos I sent you. There is kind of hit, relax, hit, relax. You know, in some of the um, in some of the sled activities they were doing. Mm -hmm. I guess. Well, so okay, so we have a time constraint too. So think about this for a second. So the average football play is somewhere between four and seven seconds. I don't know what the current current number is, but that gets you in the ballpark, right? Right. So, so they have to sustain an output, a very high output for a short period of time and then do that repeatedly. So um, worst case scenario, two minute drill where you're trying to run plays back to back to back to back to back as quickly as possible in a very short period of time, right? So they're gonna be able to need to do that. So they're gonna be trained to produce high levels of force for four to six seconds. I'm gonna do it again and again and again and again, right? So they're typical. Right. Typical constraint would be six seconds off. And I don't know, was it 25 seconds in college? And then 35 seconds in the pros. I, I don't, I don't, I haven't. You mean between plays? Yes, sir. Yes, no. sir. So, so, so again, so you have that type of an interval that you have to be able to, to consistently produce high levels of performance. And then again, like the exceptions, to the rule would be like a two minute drill where they don't have full recoveries and they need to be trained for that as well. And so again, that's just the element. It's like, can they acquire the position that allows right. them to produce the maximum force under the circumstances? And this is beyond technique, right? I mean, they've got, I mean, it's hand-to-hand -hand combat. Right. You know, so, so all of those, those elements come into play, but that's more of the technical side, not, not so much the strength and conditioning side, if you will. Right. Our main concern is, can they acquire the positions? Can they produce the force? Can they do it quickly? And can they do it over and over and over and over again? And that's, but, that's, that's how I would prepare them. So the, so the ability to acquire the position would require just enough external rotation to be able to acquire the position, right? right. But not so much that they can't, you know, can, can't, can, you know, produce force into the ground. Correct. Yeah. So, so if, if I give them too much distributed external rotation, so like an early propulsive representation or something like that, if I give them too much of that, that becomes very, very difficult for them to control because it's right. a lower force producing position. 
I want them in a very high producing position. That's why you see, when, when you see them performing, you see positions that look a lot like a box squat. Yeah. Because that's, that's where pressure is highest internally. That's where the concentric orientation is, is, is most magnified. That's where I literally, I have a, a pelvic outlet that is pushing upward to create as the highest pressure possible. So I can push into the ground and then push into my opponent. I'm cause I have to hold this position. If I give way too much and, and again, technical aspects aside, there are certain ways that they will automatically give way because it gives them a mechanical advantage. But but point being is, is like when I'm talking about the force production element of being an offensive lineman, it's like I have to be able to capture that and then produce the force. Well, so it, it sounds to me almost a little bit like uh, a power lifter. Yeah. I mean, you, you got to have just enough, uh, extra, enough motion to be able to get down and get the lights. Okay. But, but here's the difference. Here's okay. the difference. Okay. The first two elements are like a power lifter. So can you capture the position? Can you produce the force? Powerlifters don't really have a time constraint. So if I do an 800 pound squat and it takes me 10 seconds to perform it, it still counts. Okay. Right. If I'm an offensive lineman, I don't have that kind of time. Right. Right. I have to do it in a very, very narrow window of time. And I have to be able to do it over and over and over again. So, you know, a powerlifter, you know, does his max effort lift and then he goes over and he sits down for a while so he can fully recover so he can be ready for his next lift offensive lineman does not have that luxury which is probably why you wouldn't see the same magnitude of of force capabilities it's still very very high don't get me wrong it's like those guys are those guys are strong there's no question about that but i i'm going to sacrifice some some max force production like like as an offensive lineman if, if I can squat five, 600 pounds versus 800 pounds, but I can, I can produce that force much, much faster and I can do it over and over and over again. There's my, there's my advantage as an offensive lineman versus just being a pure power lifter. So there are elements that would be similar and beneficial, but you've got to start thinking, you, you, you always have to think the, the athletic element of it, because yes. again, you start to throw a time constraint into things that's power output. So that's, that's, that's force times distance per unit time. Okay. Right. Yeah. Right. And then I have to superimpose the endurance on top of that. So now how many times can I produce that same measure of power output? Okay. Okay. With respect to, um, you know, losing position in terms of just being pushed into extension, right. Um, and, and the, the need to avoid that. And, um, what, what you said, that's not, we talked, you know, you said that's definitely not core, that's something else. What is the something else? What is it that it's the ability to push down for it? It's just down for us, right? Okay. And, and I won't I won't say that the trunk's not important, right? Yeah. But but all I have to do is is have a mechanical advantage against you where my force is below yours and moving upward. Right? All right. And as soon as as soon as I have gained that mechanical advantage, I have lifted you off the ground. So you can no longer push into the ground. Right. Right. So I've moved you into, into a space away from your highest force producing capabilities. To, to, to say it's, it's something that's isolated, that it's one thing would be ridiculous. Right. Right. It doesn't, no, negate, it doesn't negate the importance of some aspect or training, but, but to say, oh, it's this. It's like, <laughs> no, it's not. It could be a technical glitch. Right. It could right. be, you, it could be that you, you came out of your stance five degrees taller than you were last time because you're too tired to hold your position. That's why I'm talking about, about, you know, capture the position, produce force there, do it quickly and then do it over and over and over again, because fatigue accumulation reduces your ability to do those things. So if I'm too tired to assume the optimal position and I get lifted up, is that, is that oh, core strength? No, it's just fatigue that doesn't allow me to capture the position in the first place. Right. Right. So, so I don't know about, you know, I, I'm going to speculate here because I don't nothing about the position. My son played football until high school, but he was always defensive back or running back. He wasn't playing the line. But this position, I'm assuming what the offensive line is trying to do is what you just said is get up under the pads and lift that guy up so he's not applying force into the ground. 
Correct. As well. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. If, if, if I move you out of your ideal force producing position, I win. So whether we're talking about sumo wrestling, um, offensive lineman against defensive lineman, a wrestler versus another wrestler, it doesn't yeah. matter. Same thing, same rules, right? I want to take you out of your force producing position and I want to gain the mechanical advantage under all circumstances. Yeah. It's kind of like the old saying, your low man's wins. You hear that sometimes. There you go. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. Does that help but, you, sir? Yes, it does. Just okay. quickly, if, if, go ahead. The valgus knee. The valgus knee. What? What would? What would be some corrections for that? Or is that just? So a valgus knee is an attempt to increase the amount of IR proximally. So that so as I anteriorly orient more and more and more, it actually creates a turn in the spine. Okay. okay? It, it turns the spine towards the midline. So if I have a right valgus knee, that means the spine is turning to the left in an attempt to create more downward force. And right. I have to move the knee into that position to create the downforce. That's what's going on there. Right. And what would be a correction for that? I mean, what would be some activities? Uh, again, it's like we, we have to look at this from the circumstances. Can they even achieve the, the, the optimal position first? Okay. And then train force production in that, in that position. Gotcha. It's, it's not a matter of like, oh, we have to correct something. Like this might be an element of training that, that needs to be addressed first and foremost. Can they capture the position? So right. it, it, some, some forms of box or variations of box squats, you know, it seems like would be a, would be a. I love box squats. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's, a, again, it's a force producing position they're going to use. Um, and, and, it, and again, it allows them to train the, the, um, um, time-related aspect of the power output. Um, Larry, I, I hate to be yeah. rude. You need to go, okay? Hey, thank you very much. I Have appreciate it. Have a great awesome. day. All right. So if, if I don't have, <clears throat> if I can't drive a, a pelvic orientation that can capture the IR, hmm. where are you going to land? Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have neural coffee in hand and... It is perfect. Okay. It is Wednesday. That means that tomorrow is Thursday. Therefore, 6 a.m. tomorrow morning coffee and coaches conference call. As usual, as we have done for the last, I don't know, 76 um, Thursdays. Give or take one or two when I'm on vacation. Um, these are great calls. Uh, please join us. 6 a.m. Bring your coffee. Bring your questions. Always a great time. Um, digging into today's Q&A, this is with Cameron. Cameron is a, a veteran of the intensive, and um, so we kind of dug deep into some, some knee pain issues. Cameron was using a downhill walk as a, as a context uh, for this discussion, but, but really what I want to bring um, to light here is that this knee stuff tends to be about the relationships. So we have to talk about foot position. We have to talk about axial skeletal position. Many of these situations are, are just results um, that, that show up in certain areas. So give, give it, for instance, yesterday I was working with a dancer um, with some midfoot pain, and it turned out that we had to get an axial skeletal position, a knee position, and then um, the foot symptoms actually resolved under those circumstances. So it's not just about the foot. Um, these things, again, tend to be results of other uh, iterative anatomy concerns and relationships. So again, I think this will be a good uh, Q&A for a lot of people. If you'd like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line. We'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everyone have an outstanding Wednesday. I will see you tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., Coffee and Coaches Conference Call. Uh -huh. Yesterday I was going for a walk, and I was thinking about walking downhill as if you were like, if you were like hiking coming down like a fairly steep grade mm -hmm. and that's right so like when you land so when you go to because you almost kind of quickly land on there's not much of like a heel strike so you're almost like coming down so like almost a flat foot so you have enough traction on like a, on a rock or the surface that you're on if you're doing one of those like scoot sort of walking down the hill things yeah uh in that case, or but because you're still like in a almost like a plantar flex position, uh -huh. are you so for people that have like a, a lot of like anterior knee pain when they come down a hill like that? Yeah, is it 
It's just trying to think. So, so like in, in an ideal to make sure you don't fall down the mountain. Like you have to like land uh, pretty quick into like an early mid propulsive situation. Well, it's definitely early. If you're, if you're going downhill, you're, yeah. you're using an, an early representation. Right. Right. And there's still IR there. Yeah. Uh, so say for people like when I'm fired to get them, feed them on the table and they have like very little internal rotation available to them. Are they then just like sort of doing mini vaults over their, like their feet and just getting like the twists through like the, through the knee in that case to make sure they don't keep falling down the mountain? Well, I need downward force, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what, what do you, what orientation do you think you're going to end up with at the knee under that circumstance? So if, if I don't have, <clears throat> if I can't drive a, a pelvic orientation that can capture the IR, mm -hmm. where are you get, where are you going to land? Where's the weight on your foot under that circumstance? It'd be more on like the outside then. Yeah, it's it's it, so it's going to be more lateral and 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 distal towards the forefoot, right? Right. Yeah. So how much internal rotation and downward force are you capable of under those circumstances? Yeah, not much. It's less. It's yeah. less than you would want. But if I don't want to slide down the the mountain, right? Yeah. How, where are you going to, where are you going to try to produce your IR? Yeah, I guess that's your knee at that point then or somewhere. Okay. So, so it's not just your knee. You understand well, that? Yeah. It'll be like an anterior orientation. Yes. And, there you go. So, so everything has to anteriorly orient and the knee is just a representation of that. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. okay. Cause I got to have, so think about this. So if I'm on the lateral aspect of the foot, mm -hmm. And let's exaggerate it for effect here. I'm on the lateral aspect. I don't have a first metatarsal head on the ground. Right. Okay. Where's the next first metatarsal head going to be? So I was thought like the picture, or at least just out of memorization, the big toe being the knee, but I suppose that would be. Yeah, it's going to be your femur is going to okay. be the next one, right? Okay. Right. And then for, but for me to get that down, all right. So I have to have a downward force that's going to fall inside the foot. Otherwise, like I said, if the, if the, if the, if the force is on the outside edge of the foot, that foot is going to slide, mm -hmm. right? It's going to slide down the surface. Yeah. So I have to create the downward force inside the base of support, which is going to be the, the next available is going to be the femur, right? Okay. But I have to anteriorly orient to get that to go. What would be the next femur superior to that? Well, what do you think it would be? Is, is it like L5 S1? Yeah. All right. Yeah, real simple. <laughs> I suppose. Oh, yeah. Well, where's the anterior orientation? Yeah. It, yeah, right? yeah the I, have to, I have to create pressure there. Right, don't I? Yeah. 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 Okay. It's, it's downforce. We got to put pressure down somewhere. That's what you're trying to do. Right. Gotcha. Okay. That's why right. orientation is is it steals your ERs, right? Right. Because I got to increase my IR force, so I got to give up the ER to get there. And if somebody like let's say in um Oh yeah, and then like Ian's case where he's talking about the where he has the client with like a, a little bit higher up. Would that just mean like the the twist is just occurring further up into this? So it'd be like a higher point on the femur would be a yeah. bigger twist. Yeah. And then in terms of the foot, would that just no, mean like so, so hang on? I think you said the key word there. It's a bigger twist, right? Just a bigger twist. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's just more twist. Oh, okay. Don't overcomplicate it. Well, I don't know if it's overcomplicated, but like, what? Where in the foot would that be? Like, what would it just be? Like, would just be like just a larger twist? Yes. Like a, okay. Yes. Okay. Um, think about okay. Think about an exaggeration of the uh, first metatarsal position mm -hmm. 
So like a bunion? Yeah. Oh, okay. 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 But, yeah. but, but look proximally at what's happening. Don't look at the bunion. The bunion's the distraction, right? right. Okay, because everybody looks there. They don't look at what's going on proximally, right? It's like, why did, the, why did I get that? Why does the, the bunion have the shape that it does? It's because proximally I had to increase the twist to get the, the first metatarsal head down. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Uh-huh. Cool. Thanks, yeah. And then that inspires people to come back, but then they become in, engaged in that, that culture and in that community. And then they buy the clothes and then they speak the language. Right. And then they're very biased against all other things. My question is regarding uh, communication with clients. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that I love about the way that you think and uh, the way that we're all starting to think is that there's so much more complexity to this whole exercise and movement thing than most people appreciate. Yeah. And uh, that complexity is obviously so important for us as coaches to acknowledge, right? And to be able to, to, sort, of, um, to sort of grasp in any given moment. Um, but with clients, um, you know, it, I noticed when I started to, to get all of this going on in my head, I would catch myself being very long winded, or I would like, I would write, or I would just say too many things and like the hip, and the show, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so I think I've been doing well to sort of try to boil it down much more simply with, with clients. Um, but I was wondering if you could speak to maybe the way that that you approach that um, and sort of your thought process for simplifying what we're trying to do with the clients. I have a lot of clients who do like the explanation. They do like the understanding of exactly why the session is the way it is. Um, and I don't want to confuse anyone. I want it to be as simple as it can be um, as straightforward as possible. Well, you, you want everything to be meaningful to them, right? But they don't need to know what you know. So, so that would be step one. Um, when, when we learn something, we get really proud of ourselves. And sometimes we just want to tell the whole world how smart we are, right? And your client doesn't really care how smart you are. They just, they care about themselves. They're there for themselves, right? They appreciate you, don't get me wrong. But, but again, they don't need to know the, the depth that, that you're thinking. They just need to know that, that there's something meaningful here for them. So maybe when I say meaningful, maybe it's for, to get them to sense something so that they know they're being successful. Um, they want to know how this is going to be beneficial for them. And again, that's, that they can internalize that and they go, okay, Andrew wants me to, to box squat this certain way because there's, if I do it this way, there's going to be a benefit beyond, you know, just whatever I think that there is, there's other, another reason for me to do this really, really well. And then that you get a lot of placebo out of this too, um, where, where the, the, the client is doing things for you, right? Cause they want, they don't want to let you down and they want you to be proud of them. Right. Um, so when you're explaining things, obviously you just want to simplify and, and that comes from establishing rapport and understanding what is meaningful to them. So when you have that first conversation with a client and, and you're, you're trying to figure out, it's like, why are you here? And everybody says, well, I want to get in shape. Yeah. Right. And that's meaningless. Like, what does that mean? What shape do you want to be? Do you want to be a triangle or do you want to be a rhombus? Right. <laughs> so um, they, they have this picture in their head of, of what they want the outcome to be. And, and it's your job to, to figure that out. And as you do that, and it's a process, don't think that you're going to get it on the first try. Um, as you do that, though, that's going to allow you to communicate with this person on their level. So, so we always say, meet them at their story. So, so they have a story that they bring to you. They have an understanding that they bring to you. And it's your job to, to communicate within that framework for them to make it meaningful. Right. But, you know, for, for one person, you might go, all right, so 
Um, we're going to box squat today. I want you to do a touch and go because I want your, and again, this is a very specific person. I want your pelvic floor to be as strong as possible. Now I would never use this, that, that phrasing in this context of talking about right. that, because I right. think that that, that word is kind of meaningless under most circumstances. Right. Right. When right. I say as strong, the word strong. Yeah. Right. But for yeah. them, they have a picture in their head of what strong is. And then they right, associate right. that with, they always associate that that with a benefit, right? So if you have a woman that that says, I always I I want to get down on the floor with my kids, and every time I get up, it's like I have to make this ugh, grunty noise and get and you go, okay, I think I have the solution here. And then so you then you say, All right, so when you touch and go off this box and you feel that pressure and you push through it, this is you getting up off the floor. This is going to reinforce that. This is going to make that easier. I have now made that that connection with that individual. Right. Right. I have done some, I've given them something that is truly meaningful. Now, do you think their efforts are going to improve? Right. Of course. And then if they recognize the benefit of that, and then you give them cues and you go, that was really good. Here's what I want you to do next time. Now they've got they've got information that they that is useful to them, that is meaningful to them. And now that session goes a whole lot, lot better. And um, you score points, right? right? Even though right. you don't understand that, um, that your, your clients do keep score. That's a really helpful reminder. Yeah. Yeah. But, but again, it, it, the idea is making it meaningful for them. It's not about you telling them how smart you are. Right. 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 We know you're smart. It's okay. What, what you need to do is make sure that, 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 they understand that you are there for them. And the only way to do that is to speak in, in their language and to, like I said, meet them at their story. That's where you spend your time. Now, the cool thing about this, if you meet them at their story, you can then bring them towards yours. Okay. So over time, um, where's Monica? Monica probably knows this. So Monica has been an IFAST a long time. And she hears what the clients start talking about. And they start talking about the same things that we talk about. And they actually do exceptionally well. They actually gain a great deal of understanding. And then they start asking the right questions that, again, it's just the atmosphere that, that sort of evolves everyone's thinking. But everybody has the story that they, whatever they have, like some people study Dr. Google and they come in and they, they say, what about this? And what about this? What about this? And then we just show them the relationships and then we bring them towards us. Right. And then that's right. how you establish, that's how you create the community. And then you have the clients that talk to each other and they go, Oh, you got to do that too. Oh, I hated when I had to do that. And they, you know, they're saying that in the, in the nicest possible way, but you know, everybody has that little commonality and go, Oh, I used to do that one a long time ago. And now I do this. Right. And, and so again, you're, but, but you're, you're literally creating a culture. Right. And that's ultimately what people want. Right. Yes, yeah. they want they want some sort of result, but they also want to be part of the part of the group. Right. Everybody wants to be one of the cool kids. Right. That's a really that's a really powerful point. Just kind of the thought process that uh, the if if I want <laughs> if I want people to that I work with to think like I do, you know, start out by thinking like they do, and and you know, and then mm -hmm. it'll slowly maybe start to approximate rather than the other way where it's yeah. like you're trying to, <laughs> right? You're trying to impose your way of thinking on them. Um, yeah. I think it's a really useful for useful reminder for me. Well, so, you know, in, as much as we can knock certain exercise systems that have become prolific to where they have now turned exercise into a competition, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, like I'm, not gonna, I'm not going to mention it by name. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. It, okay. But, but it, it, so that is what I'm talking about. Like, that's the extreme representation of what I'm talking about. It's like, there's a very specific culture within that exercise regime, right. Where it's no longer about progress and, and, and uh, um, uh, the specific outcome of, of the fitness itself. It's about, did you finish such and such workout? Right. Like they, they made, they made the workout a competition and then that inspires people to come back, but then they become in, engaged in that, that culture and in that community. And then they buy the clothes and then they speak the language. Right. And then they're very biased against all other things. Right. You can hope for that. 
because yeah. then, but but that's that's what that's what drives the the successful business, right? You create a culture that is attractive to a certain group of people, right? Right, and, and so then, I guess, and then your marketing is done for you. I have a finite. Um, quantity of resources available to me. So that's my genetics. That's my training. That's whatever I have available to me. That's my nutrition. That's my recovery, etc. Okay. Each one of those has a limit. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. It's going to be a busy weekend. Um, we are and the final push on the move from IFAS 2.0 to IFAS 3.0. So we got to wrap that up. So I'm going to dig straight into today's Q&A. This is with Kunal, who uh, from India and first time on the Coffee and Coaches Conference call yesterday. So welcome, Kunal. I, I just hope I said your name correctly. Um, but a great question in regards to distribution of resources. So initially, the question was, how do I create somebody that is very, very strong or hypertrophied and still move well and remain pain-free. And to some degrees, I think that those are achievable goals depending on, on how far we want to take things because we do have a limitation on resources. Um, how we distribute those resources determines a lot of the outcomes. We can distribute them over many capabilities and be incredibly average in many, many things, or we can shift resources in one direction to the extreme. And then this is where we see some of the amazing performances. But in doing so, we are going to sacrifice something else because we do have a finite pool of resources to draw upon. And so we discuss our way through that. We also talk about um, a little bit of programming structure near the end of this discussion as far as, as how we would want to um, structure the, the, the workout session to make sure that we're getting some of the movement-based work in with some of the high force activities. So, so stick around for that. Uh, if you'd like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. We'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everyone have an outstanding weekend. Podcast will be up on Sunday as usual. Don't forget to go to the YouTube channel and subscribe to get all the videos. And I will see you next week. Yeah, sir, my question is, um, uh, there are two types of movements. Like if we say that there is there's one spectrum where we train for hypertrophy, where we train for strength and yes. Stop, I'm gonna stop you for a second. Start over, you, you cut in and out on me. I, I'm, I'm having trouble capturing the okay, whole okay. sentence. Okay. I'm saying that there are two spectrum. One is on like uh, something training like a training for strength, training for hypertrophy or something like that. Versus on the other hand, then there are your movements or I should say there are your, your movements where we train for like for pain-free movements um, for where we use breathing uh, or walking or stuff like that where we uh, go into a specific movement where we don't use a lot of weight and just use some minimum weight and just try to breathe uh, and try to get pain-free or um, try to increase our mobility. So how should we go, uh, like how should we inculcate both of these things? Like if we say I'm doing a deadlift or on the other hand, I, I want to be pain-free at the same time. So how, how should we take these two things in hand in hand? Like how should this thing go? Okay. How many marathon runners, how many marathon runners can do a triple body weight deadlift? Very, very less. I should say no, or maybe very less. I don't know. There might be one. There might be there one. Might be Who, knows? Who knows? Okay. So, so there, there is, there is not a single solution to this question. There are trade-offs. Okay. I have a finite um, quantity of resources available to me. So that's my genetics. That's my training. That's whatever I have available to me. That's my nutrition. That's my recovery, etc. Okay. Each one of those has a limit. And if I bias my behaviors in any one direction, I have to take away from something else because I, I do not have unlimited resources. Some people have more than others. 
And that makes them very angry because they think that they can be anything that they want and they can't. Okay. I will never play professional basketball ever. I am not well designed for it. Okay. Um, but I did make up for my lack of jumping ability with my lack of moves. So, uh, but anyway, uh, see, that was a joke. And very few people are going to get that, but it was a joke. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for, thanks for acknowledging. Um, so, so that's the game that you're playing. It's like, so for everything that I move you in one direction to any significant degree, I will sacrifice something else. And it may not show up to a great degree at first, but if we use the extremes as the example, right? If we take a 280 pound bodybuilder or a 320 pound power lifter, right? Um, I have now sacrificed the ability to move freely. I have sacrificed the ability to produce speed, jumping ability, like whatever you want to, you know, whatever's in conflict with that. So there's always a trade off, right? What you may be able to do, there are people that can be slightly above average in a number of things, right? And it looks it looks from the outside like, wow, they're great at everything. And then when you think about it, they're just, if you compare them to like the best in the world, they're not the best. So um, if you use the, you're familiar with decathlon in the Olympics, right? Okay. So um, there are, there's typically going to be like four, maybe five events out of the 10 that somebody is better at than all of the others because physiologically they're better, structurally they're better. And, and so I could have a very pedestrian javelin throw in the, in the, the decathlon and still win because I'm better on, on the, like, let's just say I'm a better endurance runner. And so, so my 1500 meter time is great. My, my 400 time is good, right? But maybe I suck at hundred meters because I'm not fast enough. Right. Or maybe I'm a good jumper. So my pole vault, my high jump, my and, and et cetera is better. Right. So that's kind of how they make, make the leap. Just FYI, um, in the last Olympics, my best javelin throw would have come in 12th at the at the decathlon javelin. That's how average they are, because I was a pretty lousy javelin throw. Right. So, again, you can try to distribute things and be average to slightly above average or slightly below average on many things, or you shift those resources to a massive degree in one direction and you give up more of something. You can decide to a degree how much of whatever it is you're willing to give up. So there are people that train heavy, put on a lot of muscle. They're very, they're very strong based on gym standards and they feel great. Right. So there are people that can that can do that. That doesn't make them great at that. But they again, they, because they're above the average, it looks that way. Right. And, and then so then everybody seems to think that that might be the solution when the reality is, is like they just shifted enough resources in one direction. They took advantage of some genetic potential that allows them to represent, you know, certain things in a certain way. And but that that's just playing out the the, the process is to find out what you are capable of. And so we, we talk about monitoring key performance indicators. So what would we what would we use as a as a measure of health in regards to movement? It's like, well, do you have normal relative motions available to you? Are you able to recapture your relative motions after you do something that is a very high intensity, high force, high speed, where you would typically have to give up relative motions to produce that performance, right? Some people can perform and recapture the, the relative motions. Some people have to give up their relative motions to, to reach that, that level of performance, right? So again, it, it, we, we always wanna fall back on a process that allows us to make the best possible decisions based on your intentions, right? So if you want to be, you know, uh, a world-class power lifter, you train very, very hard and very, very heavy. And then to do that, to get more forceful, you may actually have to give up motion because any extraneous motion during a lift consumes energy 
for me to resist, you know, the, the undesired movement, right? So it may behoove me to actually give up ranges of motion at certain points in time to make the performance better. Okay. So a very long-winded answer. Uh, just one thing, just one thing. If we just cut down this whole process of like uh, doing some strength work versus doing some uh, mobility or uh, uh, breathing work, how should we use it in our workouts? Like um, if my goal is to like gain strength, um, like like doing a deadlift or maybe it's just my deadlift session. Uh, I know after that, I'm going to be uh, very stiff on the other morning or two days after that. So yeah. how should I use that breathing stuff before my uh, like deadlift session? So I could, I could tell you how we do it um, from a systematic standpoint is that we'll do some of that work beforehand. Um, the, sort of like the precursor to the, to the warm up. they'll do their, their higher force activities. Um, I bias, like if, if, if I'm going to do any high force activities, so anything that's, that's jumping, anything speed related, anything high force comes early in the, in the training session. And then we'll do stuff that might offset or support those activities. And then we encourage people to do a little bit of the, um, uh, movement based stuff before they walk out the door. Um, for a couple of reasons that number one, it sort of kickstarts your recovery processes. And number two, it kind of calms you down after the, the higher intensity stuff. So we just kind of bookend it a little bit is usually one of the easier ways to do it. Um, for some, they mean to do some, some regular homework on a daily basis, like just a, a little bit of daily movement stuff. So when you think about like a rehab perspective, um, most of the 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 stuff that that I do is learning based. Um, it's just changing strategies and such, and then that requires a regular interval of exposure. So, like if somebody exercises three times a week at the gym, um, they may still have to do something on a daily basis to help them to maintain some measure of the relative motions that we're trying to trying to uh, recapture. Does that help you at all? Thank you, sir. Thanks so much. It was You're welcome. Where, where are you right now? Um, I'm at uh, Delhi, India. Oh, okay. Excellent. It's my first time I have joined. Well, welcome. Welcome.